children, if you want to make sure you've got a pen handy, I want to give you a few words. I failed to put these in the bulletin this week, so these will be the words you're going to look for. Uh, those of you that do that on a regular basis, um, going to be looking for the words doubt, D-O-U-B-T, greatest, G-R-E-A-T-E-S-T, Blessed, humility, wisdom, and guess what? Jesus. How's that? All right? Doubt, greatest, blessed, humility, wisdom, and Jesus. Doubt is defined as feeling um, unconvinced or uncertain about something or thinking that something is unlikely. It also can mean suspecting somebody is not sincere or trustworthy or that something is not true, likely, or genuine. And many times, uh, doubt is created by what's called ambiguity. And that's defined as a lack of clarity, the presence of confusion, or having difficulty in comprehending or distinguishing something. And if you'll remember, those of you that were with us when we began our study of this wonderful gospel back in November, uh, we said at that time uh, that doubt was common. Actually, what we said was that it may be a rare occurrence for some, and it may be an occasional experience for others, and possibly a very, uh, very common and frequent struggle for uh, far more than we realize. And the truth of the matter is that no one is immune from doubt. Everyone has doubted at some point or at some time. Even the least likely of people ever have doubted. You know, they've, they've doubted themselves in, in the midst of, you know, if, if there's been enough ambiguity, it's created a sense of doubt. And, and that includes John the Baptist. John was a person of a great character. He was trustworthy. He was for, forthright. Right? He was truthful. He was disciplined and confident and bold and strong. And there was something different about him. There is no doubt. He was a little eccentric, verging on strange. But he wasn't concerned about the opinions of others. And that probably was due to the fact that he had been filled with the Spirit ever since the womb. He was, and he's been described and is described as great in the sight of the Lord. He was a herald. He publicly proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. He, he was bold in his message of repentance and in his expectation of the fruit of repentance being exhibited by those who followed the Lord. His desire was to see the Lord increase. 
And he and himself and others decreased. There, there wasn't anything prideful or arrogant or self-centered. or there, there was no personal agenda within him. If people came and heard his message and were changed and began to follow Jesus instead of him, he was joyful. His passion was to lift high and exalt the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He embraced his call to be a lamp or a wick that one author put this way. He said it meant that he was willing to be burned up and consumed so that others might see the light of the world. In the words of Jesus, among those born of women... There was none greater than John. And John doubted. It's my hope and prayer that his experience will encourage us and that the Lord will use his experience to strengthen us and our faith as he reminds us tonight that the answer to the question, shall we look to another, is a resounding no. Our passage that John read is from Luke 7. I hope you're there in your Bibles. Our outline, it's located in the back of your bulletin as is always the case. And there are three points tonight. I want us to see John question Jesus. I want us to then see Jesus question the crowds. And then finally, I want us to see the people and how they responded to both John and Jesus. All right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? Would you awaken our attention and refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and, and convict us and comfort us as we, as we hear, see Jesus and as we hear his gospel tonight? I come weak and needy, as always, to this task to which you've called me, and so I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit so that I, that I might be a, a pure channel of your grace and, uh, and do something good. Um, I pray that I would communicate with clarity and, and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and his church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John's in prison. Uh, Matthew and Mark both tell us that he was imprisoned because he had the audacity to speak out against Herod's adultery uh, in, that he had committed with Herodias, his brother's wife. And we know right away that John's message of repentance was for everyone, regardless of position, regardless of power. And his proclamation of that message came with consequences. It doesn't take much to imagine what John may have been experiencing in that prison cell. Uh, for example, he was probably suffering at some level. Even though he had contact with friends, as we'll see in a minute, a life in prison wasn't the same as a life outside and a life of freedom. And there's a good chance that, that there was not only physical discomfort, but there was probably pain 
physically, emotionally, or psychologically due to uh, his being restrained or due to the circumstances that he was in and, and the conditions of the prison. He was also, I think it's safe to say, probably struggling with a significant level of disappointment as, uh, well, not as well as, but due to unmet expectations. Being arrested and being thrown in prison wasn't, wasn't the result that he was anticipating. And everyone, everyone, including John, was expecting the Messiah to deliver them, right? He was to deliver them from their oppressors. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come and to conquer Rome and to lead God's people into the promised land of freedom and plenty. John was right there among them, so captivity was not one of the possible outcomes, Yet he finds himself there. Not to mention the fact that he, had a, he was anticipating a message of judgment. He, he, was, he was anticipating judgment, right? His message of the preparation for the Messiah had been repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he had been awaiting that judgment. But all he's been hearing is about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. Confusion, ambiguity, right? Ambiguity regarding his call, ambiguity regarding his, his message, his past, his present, his future, not to mention wondering, questioning, is what I've been believing and saying about Jesus true? And all of that ambiguity leading, of course, to doubt, which led to the question we see him ask in verse 19. Are you the one who is to come? Telling his friends, I need you to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Or shall we look for another? He, he needs the reassurance from Jesus. He wants to know that he is who he has said he is. He want, John wants to know that he is who John himself has proclaimed him to be. And he also wants to know that his prison stay is temporary. And Luke believes the question is so important, he gives it to us twice. Right? We see John asking his disciples, and then we see his disciples asking Jesus. And we need to pause right there. I know it's early on, but we need to already because there's a point worth considering. I want us to notice that his question is about Jesus, of course, but his question is not only about Jesus, he believes it's also a question that is for Jesus. In other words, he asks Jesus about Jesus. He knew right where to go. He knew who could answer his questions. Right? He sent his disciples to the one that he knew would give him the best answer. He didn't look to anyone else. He didn't go anywhere else. He went straight to Jesus because he knew it was Jesus that would give him the, the answers that he needed and desired. And brothers and sisters, in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own disappointment, in the midst of our own unmet expectations, in the midst of the ambiguity and doubt, we too should go to the source. 
We should go to the source for the answers to our questions concerning the Lord, concerning the gospel, concerning our salvation, concerning His Word. We should go to Jesus and His Word. We should go there ourselves. We should find those who rightly divide the Word of truth and rightly handle the Word of truth to get answers. We need to go to those who are going to point us back to His Word. And we should pray as we ask those questions and seek the illumination of the Spirit, asking Him to reveal that truth, to lead us into all truth. Our questions are about Jesus. Our questions are for Jesus. We all should ask Jesus about Jesus. Well, John, John's disciples do just that. They go, and in verse 20 we see they present that, that question. But before he answers, notice in verse 21, Jesus continues to do what he's been doing all along, right? He healed people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And after he had continued, he then looks at them and says to them, go tell John about what you have seen and heard. He made them eyewitnesses. He says, go tell them what you've seen and heard. You've seen and heard the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied a long time ago. You have seen and heard, you've seen the miracles and you've heard the preaching yourself. Tell him that you've seen the fulfillment of what he had been proclaiming. Go tell him that you have seen me fulfilling the ministry and proclaiming the message that I have been fulfilling and preaching since the very beginning. Nothing has changed. Tell him that you saw and heard exactly what the scriptures said he and you would see and hear. Tell him the answer to his question is, yes, I'm the one. And no, don't go anywhere else. I'm the Messiah. I'm the only one to whom you should look. Salvation is found in me alone. And tell them you're eyewitnesses of that truth. But we also need to take a moment and notice what he didn't say. Jesus quotes three passages from Isaiah. The last one is found in 61.1. And if you remember back in Luke 4, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, I want you for just a moment to picture John in that cell hearing his disciples and they're sharing Jesus' answer. He would have recognized all of those passages, but he really would have been keyed in on 61.1. And he probably, no matter where he was sitting, was probably moving forward on that seat. And his anticipation began to grow because he knew what followed. The problem was the disciples stopped short of finishing the verse because Jesus stopped, for, uh, stopped before he got to the end. What does the end say? It says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, for you and me, from a post-cross perspective, we know 
right, who those captives are and, and who those who are in prison, those who are in bondage to sin and death, and he, he releases them through his work on the cross, and he, at this time, it was looking forward, so John would not have understood why he left the second part off. John would have heard, yes, I am the one. No, you should not look for another, but you're going to remain in prison. And that, of course, makes Jesus' next statement that much more profound. He says, basically, and John, blessed are you who is not offended by me. Jesus looks at, tells his disciples, you tell him this, that Isaiah was not only right, that I would be the one, um, but he was also right, Isaiah was also right, that I would be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. People are going to trip over me because I'm not going to do what they anticipate me doing, and I'm not going to do it in the way that they're anticipating me doing it. And John... Tell John, don't be one of them. Don't, be, don't get tripped up. Keep looking to me even though you're still in prison. Keep looking to me even though your circumstances aren't going to change. Keep looking to me in the midst of your ambiguity, in the midst of your doubt. Keep looking to me and the Lord's face will turn toward you. The Lord will, the Lord will bless you and keep you. His face will shine upon you and be gracious to you. He will turn toward you and give you peace, even where you are. Brothers and sisters, even the greatest experienced doubt, and you and I will too, we are going to have those moments. You may, at this very moment, be in doubt yourself. Here's the good news. In the moments when you feel or it feels as though he has left you or forsaken you, in those moments of disappointment when things don't go the way you anticipate or the way that you've planned or the way that you were hoping for, and let's be honest, even in the way you think sometimes you might deserve, in those moments when your expectations go unmet, when your dreams come crashing down around you and go unfulfilled, in those moments when the trials come one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you're getting to a point where you just want to break, you just need an opportunity to breathe. In, the moment, in those moments of ambiguity and doubt, Jesus remains the one to whom you should look. Always. He is the one who never doubted and was always faithful. He remained faithful even in the midst of the darkest and most difficult moments you can imagine. In the midst of, in the, and in the face of temptation and persecution, 
and slander and ridicule and suffering and pain and death. He never wavered and always trusted in the Father's love, purpose, and plan. And He did it for you. He did it for you. The promise is as true today as it was for John. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Look beyond. In the moments, look beyond what you're feeling. Look beyond the circumstances to what you know to be true. And what's even better than that is look beyond your circumstances and, and, and look to the one you know is true. Look. Look. To Jesus. In Paul's words to the Galatians, if this is true, which it is, of course, he says, you have come to know God. If, if in fact, you have come to know God or rather be known by God, Paul's words are, don't turn back again. And we can take that tonight and say, look, you have been known, you are known by God. How can you look to anyone else? Look to Jesus. Well, that leads us to our second point. When John's disciples left to deliver the message, right, they leave. He says, go tell him this. They go. Jesus begins to turn around and, and quiz the crowd. He's got questions for them, and I think he did so for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think he, he was coming to the aid of his cousin. Even though he's not there, Jesus comes and, and, and speaks on John's behalf before all the people that are there. He came to his defense, right? He was, he was struggling. He was struggling to, to, about Jesus, and, and, and Jesus comes along and, and, and offers kindness, right, and, and gentleness and meekness and speaks on his behalf. And then secondly, I think he was wanting also to re- reassure the crowd around them, right, because they had heard John and they had, you know, they had heard his message and, and his boldness and confidence and now he's in prison and now he's beginning to doubt and so Jesus comes along and, and he wants to tell them, listen, uh, you know, it's okay. And so Jesus asks them, he says, okay, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Right? His, again, his questions are meant to drive, drive um, or, or move their attention away from John's doubt and away from his circumstances. They're meant to redirect them and remind them of who he is and what his message, is, or message has been. And, and he remains the same person even though he's, he's kind of, he's waffling and, and even though he's in jail and... And the, and the questions are rhetorical, of course, but they're to be answered. The first two are to be answered negatively and emphatically. The first question, if we take it literally, right, do you want to go out and into the, into the field and just to see a normal flower blow around in the wind? I mean, that's just kind of an everyday thing. If we take it figuratively, the question is, do you want to go, were you going out to to that field and did you want to see uh, some man blown around by every wind of doctrine? And so whether we take it literally or figuratively, the, the answer, no, 
We didn't do either of those things. And so he asked the second question, and based on his immediate follow-up, this is a literal question, or he means it literally. He asked, did you go into the wilderness to see some guy dressed in these fine, soft clothes? And he answers his own question, of course you didn't. If you wanted to see somebody dressed like that, you would have gone to the palace. Right? What you, you know what you came to see. You, you came to see this eccentric, poorly dressed man with conviction and boldness. And you got what you came for. And then he adds this third question, and it's rhetorical as well and meant to be answered emphatically, but it's in the affirmative. The third question makes everything clear, right? Did you come to see a prophet? Of course you did. But you didn't come just to see a prophet. You came to see the prophet. You came to see the prophet that both Micah and Isaiah spoke of. You came to see the prophet, the prophet who had had been called to be the one like Elijah. You, You came to see the prophet who was preparing the way of the Lord. You were the forerunner of the long awaited and greatly anticipated Messiah. That's who you came to see. You came to see and hear the the prophet John because he was a a man of firm conviction and a man of firm character and a man with a firm calling. And again, you got what you came for. And he remains that man. But he doesn't stop there in verse 28. He adds this, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He was absolutely the greatest prophet. He had seen with his own eyes. He had heard with his own ears. He had experienced what what all of the other prophets were only looking forward to. John was that bridge between the old and the new covenants, right? That made him special. But his status and position at that point in time, as great as it may be, Jesus says, pales in comparison to the status and position of those who are the least in the kingdom. It's, it's really, Daryl Brocks put it this way, the bottom ten of the new era are greater than the number one of the old. And we ask Why? And the answer is because even John, as great as he was, had only seen in part. He, too, was still looking forward. There were things that he would not see prior to his death. And, of course, I'm talking about the cross. And the time was at hand, Jesus is saying, the time is at hand now when even the smallest and weakest within the kingdom, because of their knowledge and their understanding of the atoning work of Christ, they would be considered greater. But that's, that's not all. Jesus is also letting them know that those who are least in the kingdom will always be greater than John because the spiritual is always greater than the natural. The spiritual is always greater than the natural. So John's earthly status at that time would not compare to the spiritual status of the least in the kingdom. And that's because our natural status does not determine our spiritual status. Our natural status uh, as 
well, a kingdom citizen, I'll put it this way, a kingdom citizen is not identified by his or her earthly status. A kingdom citizen is not identified by their position or their power or their prestige. A kingdom citizen is not identified by their rank or influence. A kingdom citizen is identified by their union with Jesus. It's their union with Christ that identifies them. A kingdom citizen is one who has been united to his life, death, and resurrection. And our position and status as kingdom citizens transcends any earthly uh, status or position we might have. Our earthly status pales in comparison to who we are in Christ. We are no longer we are now. We are no longer your earthly status. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. And there are numerous ways we could go with this. Um, I had to choose one. And so this is, this is the one I chose. Um, what we see, one of the things we see Jesus doing here in 24 to 28 is vindicating John. And it's, a, it's really a wonderful example or illustration of what Christ is going to do on Judgment Day for those who are in Jesus. And this is what I mean. On that day, um, many of us have been told that on the day of His return and we'll stand before the Father and there's going to be this big, big screen <laughs> and our life is going to be flashed up there for all to see. And as that's going on, we're, we're going to be embarrassed and humiliated and with the laundry list of our sins and failures and weaknesses and doubts being laid bare for all to see. No. On that day, those who are trusting in Christ are going to stand before the Father and others will be watching, but Christ is going to come alongside us. And as he comes alongside us, he's going to be merciful and gracious and kinder and gentler than we could ever ask or imagine. And he's going to stand there, and he's not simply going to go to bat for us. He's not simply going to lay out a case before the Father and, and argue that case and, and try to convince the Father in some way that, that we need to be vindicated because our good outweigh our bad. And he's not going to stand there and try to create reasonable doubt in the mind of the Father. As if, you know, well, no, they, they really, you know, they, they, they deserve it some way. Jesus is going to claim us as his own. On that day, he's going to say, they're mine. He's going to stand there, we're going to be hiding in Him, and He's going to announce that we are His because His life and His death has been credited to us. We're going to stand hiding in Him and alongside Him, and He's going to say that we are declared not guilty of the charges against us because of what He has done for us. He is not going to do this because our faith has always been great and spectacular. He's not going to not do it because our, because our faith has waned and we've doubted. He's going to do it because this is about Him. He's not going to do it because we're great. He's going to do it because He is great. He's going to be the one on display, not us. He'll be on display 
And he'll be there on our behalf as we hide in him. Praise the Lord for our Savior. He is the one to whom we should look. And that brings us to our last point. In verses 29 to 35, we see the people respond to both John and Jesus. And I know Jesus is the only one there. John's not. But we, as we read verses 29 and 30, it, this is kind of what happens. So um, those who had heard John's message and um, humbled themselves and, and agreed with John that they needed to repent and repented and then received John's baptism of repentance here believe and trust and say that God is true and they believe what Jesus said about himself, about him being the Messiah, about salvation, about the kingdom of God. Those who had rejected John, those who had uh, rejected his message and didn't humble themselves and didn't repent of their sin and didn't take on the, the baptism of John, when they come here, do the same thing, except this time they're rejecting Jesus. And they reject his message of salvation and his messiahship and the kingdom of God. And not surprisingly, those who favorably responded to John and those who favorably responded to Jesus were the lowly and the meek and the humble, or the outcast, the tax collector, right? the ones who understood their spiritual bankruptcy. The ones who rejected John and Jesus were the spiritually prideful who believed they had it all together. And in verses 31 to 35, Jesus begins to address those who believed they had it all together. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it quickly. All right, children, um, see if this sounds familiar, okay? How many of you have been on a playground lately? All right, you've been on a playground. All right, see if this sounds familiar. Apparently, on a playground then, the children would, uh, as they would play, they would play a couple of games. They wouldn't play hide-and-seek, and they didn't necessarily play uh, tag or house. They would play weddings and funerals. It's kind of reality playground style, right? And what would happen is that when on, on days that they would play wedding, they would play instruments and sing and, and dance around and celebrate, and then on funeral days, they would be a little more solemn, and they would march and chant and um, and, and pretend to mourn. But there was always this group of kids that if, if they didn't get to choose what game they were going to play that day, or if they didn't get to make up the rules, they would sit in the corner of the playground and pout. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Hopefully not you. You're not the one in the corner. You're the ones that wanted to, them to play and they didn't, Right? But that sounds familiar, does it not? Well, Jesus uses this example to speak to that second group. Jesus looks at these haughty, arrogant, and prideful lead, you know, scribes and Pharisees at this point who considered themselves spiritually elite, head and shoulders above everyone else, and he looks at him, he's, he's, he's looking at him, he says, you're nothing but spoiled children. He said, you're acting really holy and righteous, but you're acting like nothing but a bunch of self-righteous brats. And that's not my word, that's Daryl Box's words. 
right? Self-righteous brats. He said, you didn't like John when he came fasting and, and proclaiming judgment, and now you, you don't like me, right? You know what I mean? I, I, I come eating and drinking and proclaiming a message of grace and forgiveness. Right? You, didn't, you didn't like John. You said he had a demon, and now you're saying I'm a drunkard. I'm, ha- I'm hanging out with sinners. You know, he looks at him, he says, you're trying to put yourself before everybody as being all morally upright and intellectual and as deep thinkers and, and as those who pursue truth and that you're people of the word, but you're really just prideful, arrogant, and unwilling to submit yourselves to the Lord. He said, you don't, you don't like John because you don't want or don't think you have anything to repent of. You don't like John because he's saying if you don't repent, you're to expect judgment, and and you, you can't buy that. And then you don't like me because I'm preaching grace and forgiveness, and and if you accept that, then you have to admit you can't save yourself by any of your self-righteous polity and law-keeping. So you don't want either one of us. You want to make up your own rules. He says, what you need to do, instead of being spoiled, rotten brats, what you ought to do is be wise. And wise children, wise children exhibit their wisdom by repenting of their sin and turning in faith to receive me with joy. So this, when we take this passage and we take it as a whole, the scenario really leaves us with three questions from beginning to end, right? We've seen that he has provided concrete, right, tangible, experiential evidence as well as a biblical and personal eyewitness testimony that proves his identity. We can't escape who he is in this passage. And we also see Jesus presenting this clear-cut decision. He always did that. There was always, there were always two choices, right? Believe and live, don't believe and die. That's all he had. And we see it here as well. And so the questions we need to ask tonight are these. Number one, are we blessed? Out of verse 23, are we blessed? Secondly, are we humble? Verses 29 to 30. And then lastly, are we wise? Verse 35. Shall we look for another? The answer remains as it did at the beginning. It's a resounding no. And the blessed and the humble and the wise look to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up on our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Would you water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory, 
for our good and the sake of Christ and his church. I pray these things. Amen.